Hey everyone, the It's All Journalism team wanted to remind you that we have an email newsletter where you can get all the latest news about our podcast. Go to our website, itsalljournalism.com, and follow the link to subscribe. Thanks, and enjoy the episode. This column is, in its way, in its sort of singular way for the New York Times, I think helps a good number of people. The New York Times has long considered itself the newspaper of record and has proved that again and again through the quality of its reporting. But the Times is also a newspaper about New York City and its Metropolitan Diary is the place where readers can go to find the voice of that city. I'm Michael O'Connell. Welcome to It's All Journalism. Since 1976, the Metropolitan Diary has been a place where New Yorkers of all ages and varieties can share their stories in the New York Times. Ed Shanahan, who is the editor of the Metropolitan Diary, and the column's illustrator, Agnes Lee, are here to talk about the column's 45th anniversary and what the diary means to New Yorkers. Ed and Agnes, welcome to the It's All Journalism podcast. Hey, hello. Hi, thanks for having me. Oh, no, I'm, I'm definitely looking forward to this conversation. But usually I, start, I like to you know, start out the podcast by talking to the guests a little bit about their backgrounds. Ed, you know, I know that you started with the Metropolitan Diary in 2016. Why don't you tell me your road to that position? You need a whole other podcast for that. Uh, I think. Well, but, uh, I'm just trying to fill up space here. Just go take your time. <laughs> no, that's, that's fine. My road in a certain way actually began at the New York Times back in about 1987, when I arrived here as what they call a casual or temporary employee as a copy boy. I wasn't actually a boy at that point, but that's what they called us. And I worked for a couple of years in that capacity and then decided when I arrived, journalism was not necessarily something that I planned or expected to pursue. In fact, it was something that I was sort of running away from because it was my father's profession. But once I got into the New York Times in this low-level role, it kind of clicked and made sense to me as it's something I would like to do. So, but because of the way I had come into the paper as sort of a through the back door, I didn't quite have the right pedigree to move up in the ranks. And I was counseled that perhaps I should go out into the world and get some other experience and maybe I could make my way back. And I did go out into the world and did various things. I was a daily newspaper reporter in New Jersey at some small papers in upstate New York. I was a freelance writer for magazines for a number of years. I was a a magazine editor at a a short-lived media magazine called Brill's Content. I was uh, editor at uh, another short-lived magazine, a lot of short-lived publications on my resume that was put out by the AARP called My Generation. It was geared for baby boomers. I was at Reader's Digest for several years. Then I worked for a trade publication, a legal publication called The American Lawyer. And then in 2014, I wound up back at the New York Times as a copy editor on the Metro copy desk. And it was a couple of years after that, that the then editor of the Metropolitan Diary, Michael Pollack, retired. And in his infinite wisdom, my boss at the time suggested perhaps I should take it on and that's, I guess, a short version of my long road here. Okay. Agnes, now you you came to uh, New York City in 2017. You were uh, an illustrator in California. What brought you to uh, New York? And, you know, well, actually, let's go back a little bit. You know, how did you become an illustrator? And, you know, tell me about your experiences and how you ended up with the Metropolitan Diary. My history is not as, as intricate as Ed's, but... <laughs> 
I was always interested in drawing as most kids are, and I really wanted to pursue it. And I ended up going to art school at Art Center College of Design in Pasadena. And I studied editorial illustration and graphic design there. And I took out a really big student loan to go to the school. So I was, I was leaning more towards graphic design to help pay those loans off because I, it felt like a little more of a, a stable career path. But anyway, so after I graduated, I, I worked in design for a little bit, but I was always freelance, freelancing illustration on the side. And then at a certain point, I just really wanted to focus on my illustration work. So my friend and I, we moved from California to New York uh, to give it a fair shot. And I freelanced for about a year and a half. But then after that, I took on some illustration contract work. And actually, one of the, the contract positions was working for the Times, much like Ed, I was a temporary worker as well. And so I was brought on to be an art director, but I was still drawing on the side and, and Metro Diary just kind of fell into my lap because they needed an illustrator. And, and so that's how I became the, the illustrator for the column. And it's really special to me now. So I've since left, left the Times and I've done more contract work for a variety of companies. And I'm very fortunate that I've been able to do lots of different types of illustration while still be able to do my personal work. And now I'm about to start a new job as an in-house illustrator at Plaid. And, and I'm still working on personal stuff. I'm working on a graphic novel right now, but don't worry, I'll still be drawing Metro Diary. <laughs> So what did, what did each of you know about the Metro Diary before you came to that job? My answer is going to be very short. I knew nothing yeah. about yeah. the diary. Yeah. <laughs> I, I didn't know it existed. I didn't, I didn't know anything about it until they asked me to illustrate it. I knew more. <laughs> I uh, had, you know, been a occasional to regular reader of the Times for many years and the Metropolitan Diary was one of those. I wouldn't say that, you know, I was a devoted every week reader or anything, but it was one of those columns in the paper, one of those features that I would sort of, I didn't seek it out. You know, when reading a newspaper meant like opening up a, print, a thing on printed paper and, you know, you're flipping through the pages, what the Metropolitan Diary, when, when I would come across it, it was always something I would pause and read because, you know, just the, the nature of it, the short snippets that, you know, life in New York, there's, a, there's some humor to it, some sweetness to it. So it, it was something that I knew, you know, going back to when I first arrived in New York City. I mean, I've probably been in New York City for a little less than 45 years. So about as long as Metropolitan Diary has been around, I've been in New York City. So I knew it. And then when I got here, working on the Metro copy desk, I would fairly regularly, you know, one of my tasks on a weekly basis would be not, not always, but, you know, sort of luck of the draw, but often I would copy edit the columns. So then I had a little bit more of a closer relationship to it and a little bit of a, perhaps a better, you know, understanding of what, what went into it, how it came together. So how different is it than editing, you know, a reported column or something that's a part of the, the, the Metro page? First, I will say the way it's the same is we is we try to, you know, we want it to adhere as much as possible to the to our standards, our standards of factual accuracy as possible. And we want it to adhere to our stylistic rules as much as possible. 
so we edit we say we this is the royal we because i'm i'm right i edit it to you know to basically try to adhere to those standards beyond that i think with any writer you try to retain the writer's voice many news articles that we write are not necessarily voicey per se because they're news articles and they're more about facts and context and less about I mean, there's observation also, but maybe less impressionistic maybe than Metropolitan Diary would be. These are personal reminiscences, personal anecdotes. And so I try to be careful to retain as much of the voice as possible. And again, these are short items and there's something that has caught my eye or my ear in the first place. So whatever that sort of essential, that kernel is, I try very hard to make sure that that remains intact as well. Do you find that a lot of the submissions that you get are things that you're able to recognize pretty quickly? It's not something that you're, that makes the cut? Yes. I have some inherited some of my own imposed rules about what we don't, what we won't use, what kind of topics we won't, we want. There's no politics in Metropolitan Diary. There's no bathroom humor in Metropolitan Diary. There's no kids say the darndest things in Metropolitan Diary. There has not been, except for recently and only occasionally in a glancing way for the last couple of years, and this has been kind of difficult, but I've tried very hard not to allow the pandemic to really intrude on Metropolitan Diary just because there is so much of that in the rest of the paper and the, forgive me, I always say paper and I know that it's really not the paper for so many people, but there's so much of that in the rest of our report that I feel like I've just tried to make this a, a place where some of the things that maybe are unsettling and upsetting and anxiety provoking for people. We try to keep them at a distance, basically. Tell me, Agnes, about the process of, you know, how you get an article, how you read it, and then how you kind of figure out how you want to visualize it. So like Ed said, the the stories are pretty short and they're pretty direct. And so I'll just read everything once through. And once I read it, I'll I'll start out with some very rough sketches in a first pass to get down initial ideas. And there I can kind of work out like which ideas are working. I can work out compositions and, and then I can look up reference images that I may need. The challenge for me is to be able to illustrate something that kind of like teases the viewer, I guess. Like I want people to be curious about the illustration. Like why are these people talking or what what's going on at the hot dog stand so that they want to read the rest of the the story. And there's definitely been stories where like I've illustrated the punchline and Ed has had to be like, no, 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 we can't show that. Not yet. So that's kind of fun. So once I figure out like which rough sketches I want to share with Ed, I'll refine it and then I'll send them to Ed and and he always fact checks me and then he'll select one that will be published with the column. Is it pretty much just one image now with each story? That's what it gets published as. But when I, when I send things to Ed, it's anywhere between two to three sketches. Okay. Before we turn on the mics, you and I had a, had a little conversation about manga and comics and anime <laughs> and, and illustration and drawing illustration is different than than like a comic strip or cartooning 
Mm-hmm. I mean, if you go to the editorial page, you're going to see editorial cartoons. I mean, how is it different? Let's let's just say that. I think the the biggest difference is that in comics you have more than one panel, whereas I'm, I guess, limited to just a single drawing, and I and I really have to pack in everything in that one drawing. And unfortunately, I can't build out a pace of sorts, a storytelling pace. But we recently did do a a burst it's called where like you swipe through different sections of the story like the story was broken up into different parts and I drew an illustration for each of those parts so that was as close as I got to more of a comic book storytelling way and it was nice to kind of like figure out different compositions and make sure that like I'm not repeating the same image or and that like visually it's interesting to the viewer. Just to talk about a little bit about what Agnes is saying about this burst concept. So that's an internal term that we use. Nobody yeah. knows. So <laughs> that's the jargon, the Times jargon. Journalists right. love their jargon. But, <laughs> but um, so, you know, the Times is constantly, as most media outlets, I think, are trying to figure out different ways to engage readers, users. And one of the things that we've been doing more of lately, this is a a format that's pretty much designed specifically for the phone, right? It's a very, it's like a five panel swipe through story, basically, with um, each panel having a bit of text and an image with it. And I mean, the idea is that on the phone, this is going to be appealing, especially to those younger readers and users that we're all so anxious to bring into the New York Times fold. We use this format with you know some reported stories, sort of condensed versions of reported stories, you know, reporters on the scene describing the action and in short text blocks and then images showing what they're looking at. So, but in a way, the Metropolitan Diary is almost sort of like a perfect, if you have the right stories, it's it's perfect because it's short by its nature, right? It's not you're not trying to tell a 1500 word, you know, enterprise piece in 300 words scattered across five panels. You can take these stories, which generally don't run any more than 300 words, and that's a really long one for Metropolitan Diary, and you can break them up pretty nicely across five panels and allow Agnes to stretch out a little bit and do, you know, it's not a strip per se, but it, there's a little bit more of almost a, a comic type feel to it. So that's just to expand on that idea. Maybe add a little more flavor to the visual. It's a different way to present it and a different way to draw readers in. And then we can sort of, I mean, say blow out the story. It's not exactly like extravaganza, but we're giving it a little bit more. It's just getting a little bit more of a slightly splashier presentation. And we've only actually done one of these so far, but the early indications were that readers liked it. And so we're going to try a couple of more. It's nice because the art is like um, it's a little little megaphone that just hey look at this <laughs> yeah, yeah <laughs> our, our small little piece this is what we're absolutely. here to- I mean Agnes's work her style and the illustrations that she does for the column have helped give it a real it's, it's got a signature look and feel now and really have helped breathe some new life into the column I think and so anything we can do uh, to make more use of of her her work and her skill, I think, is to our great benefit. Oh, thanks, Ed. <laughs> so what makes a, a good uh, diary uh, entry? Well, 
Got to be short, and it can't have any <laughs> break any of those strictures that Let's we have. Let's go past the rules. Like, what is it your eyes see that go, yeah, this is really good. People are going to like this. It can be different things. I mean, humor, you know, I'm always looking for something that's got a little bit of humor to it. Something that reflects some human connection is good. Something that is very, gives you a very specific sense of New York. Somebody talking about a specific place or a specific person that we associate with New York. Even... I will say that, and sometimes we get knocked for it, there can be a certain nostalgic quality to a fair amount of the items that we run. People recalling this week, we have a, an anecdote, kind of a funny one about a, uh, a kosher dairy restaurant, Rappaport's, which has long since been closed. But it's a place that you know many people who read the New York Times, who read Metropolitan Diary, remember. They've been there. They've heard about it from somebody in their family. Celebrities are good, although I particularly like ones that are kind of maybe not really celebrities as we think of them. Famous New York people. I mean, I'm very pleased, for instance, that in the time that I've been editing Metropolitan Diary, I've managed to get Lou Reed, Patti Smith, Miles Davis, trying to think who else. There's definitely some other ones. But, you know, these are like kind of real New York characters. And so that's good. and. I guess another thing that I think can make for a good one is if someone describes something that's a familiar experience to me, a familiar city experience to me, and that I know because it's familiar to me, it's familiar to others. If it has to do with, say, the alternate side of the street parking or um, that's a good one um, or (laughs) things that happen on the subway, the subway is honestly is a major presence in Metropolitan Diary because it is used by everybody. So, you know, certain encounters you would have in the subway or underground in the, you know, musicians playing in the subway and an anecdote related to that or something. Those are some of some of the things. So this is kind of to both of you, but I mean, what does the column say about, about New York? What is this narrative that, that's been going on for 45 years? If people only read that in the New York Times, what would they think about New York City? Honestly, I don't know about the, fir- the first 40 years. I can tell you about the last five years, what they would think about it. And they would probably think it's an imaginary place. Like it's not real <laughs> in a certain way. No, even though it's very real. I mean, everything that we, that we publish is, is a real story about something real that happened. But they would think New York's a, a place where people are, are kind to each other, where they help each other, <laughs> where they're occasionally sarcastic to each other and in a hurry and don't have time necessarily to be nice. But for the most part, where New York is sort of a small town, maybe this is a cliche, it's like the biggest small town where people are looking out for one another and amazing things can happen or actually boring things can happen, but they can make an impression on people in a way that lasts them for their whole lifetime. Yeah. My mom and dad are from Brooklyn. And my mom would always say, because we, I grew up in the Midwest, she would say, the friendliest people are in New York City. You know, if you're ever in trouble or you ever needed help, you just go to your neighbor. People would help each other out. I mean, you know, come on. New York's got its problems. It's got a lot of problems. I just wrote a story in part of my other life a couple of weeks ago about the tremendous uh, surge in um, the rat population in New York. <laughs> Um, since the pandemic began, you're not going to read about that in Metropolitan Diary. I'm not going to include that in Metropolitan Diary because I believe I did once publish an item about somebody stepping on a rat in the subway, <laughs> which to me 
that was like a familiar, like that could happen. And the response that the person had when it happened was funny, as I recall. But, but <laughs> me, you know, in my imagination, New York is a, a friendly, welcoming place that's sort of where people find themselves, they find other people, and it sort of, it sort of nurtures people in a way. As a resident of the Washington, D.C. area, I'll let you know that we're, we're on your tail when it comes to rats. We've got our own <laughs> developing rat problem. So we'll fight you for that crown. Okay. Uh, so, so, Agnes, tell me, do you have a favorite column that you've, you've illustrated, you know, or one that you've read that you thought was great? Oh, there have been some standouts, but mostly because I really enjoyed the drawing process. There was a recent story or semi-recent story of a man walking his cat and i think that's the most amazing thing ever i have a cat but he is not walkable so the fact that this occurred in new york is is pretty great and there was another one where a woman or someone was eating sardines and i thought that was so so strange but also really cool because one of my frisbee teammates loves sardines to eat during a tournament and I had one and I was like, you know, this isn't too bad. So I like drawing the sardines after having that conversation with him. You recall, I just interject for a moment that that anecdote was about a woman or somebody being on the bus and seeing a guy eating sardines <laughs> in, oh, and the yeah. guy, the guy was eating the sardines. He said, man, I could really use a cracker right now. Oh, that's yeah. And yeah. Woman, that's right. A woman next to him reached into her bag and pulled out a package of small beans and gave it to him. <laughs> that was a good one. Yeah, that was a really good one. The, another good one was, I think this woman wanted to surprise her father. So she wrapped herself in wrapping paper and put like a bow on her head and just showed up in front of his door. And that was, so that was a lot of fun to draw. And another one that stood out to me, Lois Lowry, the, the author, she submitted an entry. And I thought that was really cool because I had grown up reading her books like The Giver. And I didn't know she had a connection to New York City. So that was a fun one to draw. What do people tell you about this column? I mean, do you get, well, first of all, let me ask you this question. How many submissions do you get a week? We get anywhere from 80 to 100, 80 to 100 submissions. And many of them the vast majority of them are not usable. I mean, I would say that in a good week of 100, we might get four or five that are usable. So that's how many your people are submitting to you. What is the audience of the Metropolitan Diary? What are they saying to you? Well, you know, I spend an awful lot of time. We open up comments on the diary, and we have a pretty lively commenting community there. And a lot of what they say is sort of reinforces or helps guide my thinking about what the column is or should be in terms of kind of an oasis for people who are looking for, you know, a break. You know, these are informed people who are reading the paper, but they're looking for a break from the, you know, the drumbeat of bad, so much bad news that we're inundated with. But one of the interesting things about Metropolitan Diary, and this is true, I think, about any kind of storytelling endeavor, whatever you would call it, exercise, is that it prompts people to tell their own stories. The comments are often filled with commenters who use an item in Metropolitan Diary as a jumping off point to recall their own sort of related experience 
in going to Ebbets Field or in having lost something that was returned by somebody unexpected or whatever it is. There's a lot of sort of added storytelling that goes on. And I would say also, and it's part of the liveliness, there are probably about 20, maybe more by now, 20 or 25 regular commenters who sort of talk back and forth among themselves in the comments. It's like a place they get together once a week. And that's that's not really saying anything about the column explicitly, but I think it's saying something about the idea of the column and how it functions, basically. You know, I know that you say you get like 80 or 100 submissions every week. You know, how can somebody who has an idea, has a story they want to share, what would you say to them? What would you, how would you encourage them? I would urge, I would encourage enthusiastically, please, if you have a short personal story that's connected to New York, something that is meaningful to you that you think others might appreciate, I would urge you to go to, you can find the Metropolitan Diary on the New York page at the New York Times. You could just Google Metropolitan Diary. You can find it pretty easily that way. And there, right on the column page, you'll see the submission form and anybody can submit. Amateurs, professionals, we don't pay. We do publish stuff that's good. So I would just encourage anybody who thinks they might have a story to tell about New York to get in touch. What was the old movie? There are 10 million stories in, in the city. Right, exactly. We run five a week. So um, <laughs> you, still got, you still got a few to tell. Okay, cool. And, and some weeks we have a hard time getting to our five. So we would we would always encourage people. That reminds me of a question I did want to ask you. I know you say that you get ones that you can't read for whatever, that you can't publish because of the subject or whatever. But did you ever get something that's maybe not the best written, but is is really just like, wow, this is a really good story. And how do you deal with that? Some require more polishing than others, I would say. We don't get anything that is... <laughs> These are uh, New York Times readers, after all. Go on. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, but I mean, I wouldn't say... I'm not going to say the New York Times readers are, are necessarily better writers. But I, I just say that the quality of the submissions can vary. I feel like there's a sort of a baseline that even a one that's going to require a bit more editing, a polishing, maybe even, you know, moving one sentence here and one sentence there, you can recognize the story. You can see the story there. You can see the kernel that you think people are going to respond to. So then it's a question of proceeding with caution and not overdoing it and bringing that to the fore. It seems very democratic that on the one hand, you're, you're getting a completely different voice even though, as you said, that you, you know, you follow all the rules that you need to do for the, the writing and the reporting of the rest of the paper, but sort of a voice from the people and the personal experience. I mean, a lot of journalism is, is you're out covering a story and you're, you're asking all the questions of all the people you need to be asking questions of. And you come back and you put, you put something together. But these are like personal experiences. These are people just something touches them as personal or funny or whatever, and they want to share it with somebody. You know, when we were sort of planning this podcast, that was one of the things I would, that I was really attracted to about this idea is that, you know, this is a different voice. It also, in a, in a way, supports kind of what the New York Times does in the yeah. way it covers this community. I think so. People who like the New York Times 
feel very strong. I mean, then the people who don't like it feel very strongly too. <laughs> Everybody's got but an people, opinion. <laughs> yeah, but the but the people who like it feel very strongly about it, and there are different things about it that they like very much. But you're right that that this column is in its way, in its sort of singular way for the New York Times, I think helps a good number of people. It, it sort of maintains that bond or strengthens that bond or, or gives it a kind of a, a deep quality that I think they really appreciate. What is it that you take away from the column, Agnes? Since I'm a transplant to the city, like it's kind of like a, a welcoming thing it, like it makes the city for me not as overwhelming and it makes it a lot more accessible to me so I really appreciate being able to draw that and everything that like Ed described how the Metropolitan Diary describes New York about being kind and friendly and nurturing like that's actually the New York I've experienced so I'm happy to actually see that reflect in the in the diary entries too. I've been talking to Agnes Lee and Ed Shanahan, illustrator and editor of the New York Times Metropolitan Diary. Agnes and Ed, thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you very much. Great talking to you. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the people who make the news. You can find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. While you're visiting our website, sign up for the It's All Journalism newsletter. You'll get all the latest info about our podcast, including episode notes and news about live events and upcoming interviews. Go to itsalljournalism.com to subscribe. Speaking of subscribing, you can subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, SoundCloud, Google Play, and pretty much anywhere good podcasts are found. If you'd like to help us grow our podcast, like and share our episodes on social media. Look for us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. It takes a lot of people to create an episode of It's All Journalism. Nicola Grisco produced this episode. Amber Healy wrote our web content. Nick Capre wrote our theme music. Emilio Brust helped with our booking. Steph Thomas is our social media manager. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Thanks for listening.